Well, we are this morning concluding our study in the book of Daniel. And uh, you should all get a badge, really, I think, because you've stuck with it. It's not um, the easiest of books because there's lots of technical bits in it. There's lots of prophecies and, and so on. And uh, particularly last week, kind of a mammoth session going through uh, all those details and those prophecies uh, that we went through. But hopefully, if nothing else, you've taken away the fact that this really is God's word. That man could not have orchestrated this, that man could not have put together something so complex, so detailed, that tells the future in detail before we get there. Uh, and God, of course, says that he's able to do that. In Isaiah uh, 46, verses 9 and 10, God says that he can tell the end from the beginning. And it's a test that he puts out there. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you can't prove the Bible. You can't prove that God exists. Yes, you can. Are you prepared to accept the, the evidence? Are you accept, prepared to accept the proof? Because there's overwhelming evidence and there are lots of tests that we can apply to look at the Bible to see whether it really is true. And, you know, there are many churches this morning that will be speaking and they'll be teaching and they'll be giving sermons based upon passages out of God's word. They'll be talking about how much God loves us and God's grace and God's forgiveness. And those are all right and proper. Those are good things. But if we don't have that confidence in God's word, when we get to those difficult seasons, when we're shaken, then we'll start to doubt. We'll start to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, so we need that real solid grounding in God's word, understanding that this really is true. It's not made up. And as I said, you know, there's so many ways. We've looked at a number of these things in the past. And obviously, Daniel's been a great exercise in just looking prophetically at uh, the detail. And we'll carry on in those things this morning. In chapter 10, 11, and 12, we're seeing here one uh, prophecy effectively. But it starts with this vision that Daniel had seemingly of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that again uh, come out in this morning's teaching. And then, of course, it looked at the whole question that Daniel had been praying about, was, which was, what's going to happen about my people and my city? What's going to happen about the Jews and Jerusalem? That's what Daniel was concerned about. And, of course, in chapter 9, God had sent Gabriel to give Daniel a, an answer in detail to when the Messiah would come and some of the things that were going to be happening to Israel, one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. And then as we go into chapters 10, 11, and 12, again, it picks up this theme of what is going to happen to Israel in the closing days and the days that are yet to come. We are historically around about 536 BC now. Okay, So this is now a year or so after the children of Israel have left Babylon. They've gone back now. Nehemiah will tell us that there's only about 50,000 returned out of all the multitude that were taken away from Israel. There's only about 50,000 that, that returned to the land of Israel. Um, but this is now about a year after that. So they're back in the land. They haven't yet rebuilt the temple. That will be some time to come. Um, another 20-odd years from this point. In fact, about 18 years from this point, actually. Uh, and then uh, the, the walls and things hadn't been rebuilt. That's, again, Nehemiah, Ezra, detail the, the trouble the Jews had when they got back um, with that program. But let's go into the text of chapter 12, because there's a lot here uh, that hopefully will be um, refreshing uh, and a refresher, um, but also insightful as we look at what we're going through right now. So chapter one, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, begins and says, And at that time, well, that's where we've got to start. Okay, so what time are we referring to? Well, it's the time that we've just been looking at in the previous chapter, which was spoken of as the time of the end. Now, in the book of Acts, Peter, there standing up on the day of Pentecost, quotes again from the book of Joel and says that this is the end time. We are in the end times even now. So we are in a period of time where we are just waiting for the Lord to do whatever the Lord is going to do next. And there are a number of things that are revealed in his word, and we'll see some of those things uh, highlighted for us this morning. But we're in that period of time. There's nothing that has to happen between now and the Lord coming to take the church back to be with him. We refer to that as the rapture. It's what Leon was sharing with us this morning. So this is the, the end times that we're referring to. But specifically, we recognize, of course, that we've got 2,000 years or 2,500 years since this point 
we are so much close to these things being fulfilled. And we're told, at that time shall Michael stand up. Okay, so and the, the point is really clear. Uh, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. Now, of course, whenever we see Gabriel in scripture uh, showing up, he's always on an errand to announce something to do with the Messiah. That's the case in chapter 9 of Daniel. Of course, it's the case in uh, Matthew's gospel and Luke and so on in regard to the announcing that uh, Mary was going to have this child, the Messiah. Gabriel always seems to be connected with announcing something to do with the Messiah. Michael, on the other hand, always seems to be connected with something to do with warfare regarding Israel, uh, be it spiritual or however else. Um, but Michael always seems to be in that regard. And so we're told that at the time of the end, in the end times, and for us, this is still, these things are yet to come. Okay, so Michael, stand up. So this is this great, uh, this archangel, this incredible, incredibly powerful angel. It's going to stand up. This is thy great, great prince, which stands for the children of thy people. And then we're told something, which for Daniel must have been really quite disturbing. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Now Daniel had grown up 14 years out of age, roughly, Babylon come, take him and his family and his friends away captive to, to Babylon. He'd seen so much in his life. He'd seen so much anti-Semitism, persecution of the Jews. And yet now he's being told by this angel that is revealing this to him that there is going to come a time that is going to be worse than all of that combined. I mean, could you imagine living in a world which was just overwhelmed with anti-Semitism? Oh, yeah, we do, don't we? Why is that? Have you ever stopped to consider, why is the world so anti-Semitic? You know, we've got one one-thousandth of the world population, a nation smaller than Israel. All they really do to the world is contribute in, in all sorts of ways, scientifically and uh, medical advances and research. Of course, they're one of the largest fruit producers in the world. But Israel itself hasn't got any real natural resources other than fruit, which is only since they've been back in the land that that's happened. But they're not a great oil-producing nation. They don't really affect the economy of the world in that regard. And yet, they seem to be hated almost by all nations. It's very rare that you get someone stand up and support Israel. It's bizarre. And again, just think of this, because... You try and think of the nations that existed two and a half thousand years ago, such as Israel did here. You know, when was the last time you bumped into a Babylonian? Now, we know, of course, it's the area today that is associated with Iraq. Well, when did you last see a Persian? Well, again, that's the area associated with Iran. So we have the descendants of those. But what about the Amalekites? What about the Hittites? we don't know where they went. They just disappeared. They got lost in the sands of time. But Israel, this small little nation, still exists as an identifiable ethnic group of people to this day. That is one of the miracles of the Bible. I believe it was um, Benjamin Disraeli uh, that went to Queen Victoria, was, had an audience with, and she said, just give me one proof uh, for that the Bible's true. And apparently the response came back was, the Jews. That was all that was said. And that's all that needs to be said. You've only got to look at the history of the nation and look at what they've gone through. Look at the incredible events that have taken place on specific days, hundreds and even thousands of years in the future from from the, the point certain events happened. And you start to realize that this is a nation like no other nation. And the Bible, of course, says that God had chosen this nation, not because they were better than anybody else or whatever, but simply because he needed a nation through which he would bring the Messiah into this world. And God chose a man called Abraham. And Abraham was called out of this Gentile, idol-worshipping culture, the Ur of the Chaldees, and he's told to go to a land that God would show him and give to him. A land, by the way, that the world gets so confused about, and they speak about occupied territories and all this kind of stuff. And so much of it's all kind of media-driven and everything else. It's kind of a political thing. But you know that there had been 
Jewish kings effectively, or should we say Semitic kings would be a better expression, ruling and reigning in the land that today we call Israel for a thousand years before the Canaanites got there. Did you know that? Melchizedek, that we read about in the book of Genesis, was one of those kings. And he was part of a succession of kings that were Semitic kings. And so this whole idea that Israel came back from Egypt and then conquered the land and threw out the inhabitants, well, that is true to a point, but those inhabitants had kind of come into that land. They weren't there to start with either. Now, this, this was a nation that God had set up and established for the express purpose of providing a way for the Messiah to be brought safely into the world. And Satan did everything he possibly could to destroy this nation. You think about the time when they were in Egypt and the, the, the male babies were killed so that they would try and stop this, this line. It gets down with the royal family, sometimes down to just one individual sitting on the throne that's taken and, and, and protected. You know, you think even to the time of Herod trying to kill all the the children, the male babies up to the age of two years old. All these attempts, there's so many more we could cite. All attempts to try and get rid of this line that had come down from Adam and Eve all the way down that God had promised that eventually the Messiah would come from, who would be brought into this world, who would be a savior. And you realize as you look at this and you see the details, how God has worked all of history with the express purpose of providing a way of salvation for mankind, for the whosoever. So we're told here that there will be a time of trouble, such as there never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Interesting. It's one of the most prevalent themes in the Bible, as we've already highlighted. And Jeremiah calls this time of trouble that's coming the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not just a time of trouble for the world. It will be. But it's specifically the time of Jacob's trouble. Notice what we are told, though, that the Lord will deliver Israel. And that's a common theme that we find throughout the Bible. And again, there's an interesting note there that it's everyone that shall be found written in the book. God is very good at bookkeeping. And he has a book in which are written the names of all those who are saved, who will be saved. Jeremiah, this is that verse that I just mentioned. It says, I ask you now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail? And all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Notice again this statement. That at that time thy people shall be delivered again. God has always promised to deliver Israel. If we go back to the, uh, in fact, I just just highlight Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. In fact, I am just going to read that because it's so important. You may be familiar with Deuteronomy 28. It's a chapter that just details prophetically the future of the nation of Israel and all that was going to come upon them, the the blessings and the curses that have been spoken about, the fact that they'd be scattered around the world. First of all, uh, that nations would come and take their produce and their grain. And of course, we have that Gideon. Uh, is an example of that kind of uh, phase of their history. Eventually, they'd be cast out of their land, and then after that, they'd be scattered around the world. Their life would hang in doubt. And again, that's what we're told in Deuteronomy 28. But when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, staggering statement, it says, and it shall come to pass when, really important word, single word there, when, all these things come upon thee. So God was saying, I know that you are going to rebel. I know that you will be cast out of your land because of your iniquity. When all these things have come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God has driven thee. So there's promise here that Israel will be cast out. They weren't even in the land at this point, by the way. When Moses is getting this prophecy and is recording this for us, they weren't even in the land of Canaan. And yet they're being told that they'll not only will they be blessed, but then they'll be sent out around the world, scattered around the world. Verse 2, and shall return unto the Lord thy God. Prophetically, it says here that they will return and shall obey his voice. And according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thy heart and with all thy soul, that then, okay, there's two really key words. When this happens, then. 
that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return. God is going to return to Israel. Well, you get the idea. If you're returning somewhere, it must be you've already been there once. But of course, the Messiah came. They rejected him, but Jesus will return. And gather thee from all the nations. What do we read in Matthew 24? That when Jesus comes back, he's going to gather all of Israel from the four winds of the four cardinal points of the compass. He's going to bring them all back to the land. And gather thee from all the nations, whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. And it goes on from that point. Ezekiel 37, as you, we mentioned it this morning uh, in that song we were singing. Um, and that speaks again of Israel being brought back into their land and made a nation again. There will no more be Israel and Judah, but there will be one nation united, which is exactly what we have now. They're still in that state of unbelief, but that is also prophesied in that chapter that eventually the Lord will breathe on them and they'll come back to life spiritually. I just want to go back to the Jeremiah uh, prophecy. The next two verses go on and say, For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break off his yoke, uh, or sorry, break his yoke from off thy neck, and I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no, no more serve themselves of him. In other words, strangers, other nations, won't treat Israel with disdain and disregard and so on and take what they have and so on. Verse 9 goes on and says, But they shall serve, this is Israel, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. What an interesting statement. Some think that's an allusion to the Messiah, and it might be. Others, and I'm of this group, that think that this is actually David. It's crazy to think that someone who lived some 3,000 years ago could once again be resurrected from the dead and sit and rule and reign. But you know what? When you read the Bible, you start to realize just these things that have been prophesied, everything the Bible speaks of prophetically that has happened or has been fulfilled so far has been fulfilled with incredible precision. So why not these things? And of course, God is a God who is able to raise from the dead. Paul says in First Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection, that we are of all men most miserable. In other words, we might as well just pack up and go home. If there is no resurrection, we're just wasting our time. No, no, we believe that the resurrection took place, the resurrection of Jesus, and therefore all resurrections become possible as a result. And here, this statement of Jeremiah says that God is going to not only bring them back, but to break the bonds from them. They will serve God, and God is going to raise up David to rule over them. Matthew chapter 24 also speaks of this time of Jacob's trouble. We read, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, okay, this image that's going to be placed into the temple, spoken of by none other than Daniel the prophet. This is what we've been looking at over recent weeks. Stand in the holy place, that's the temple. Whoso readeth, let him understand. I love that little kind of comment there because Matthew's kind of saying, come on, make sure you're following this. Okay, and this is all Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11 that we've already seen. Um, and Daniel's vision of the ram, which is Medo-Persia, and the he-goat being Greece. And uh, again, we went through all of that, review those sessions if you want to. But it goes on. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then, let them which be in Judea. Okay, this doesn't apply to the church. We don't live in Israel. I mean, there are Christians in Israel, but this is specifically referring to the Jews. The land which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Which mountains? We believe it's going to be the area of Edom or modern-day Jordan. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. In other words, don't go and start packing all your bits. Just get out of there. Because when this happens, Israel are going to have to flee. Because persecution is going to come on them at that point greater than anything, including the Holocaust that we've seen so far. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter. The reason for that is that some of the roads can become quite impassable. Neither on the Sabbath day, because there was laws as to how far they can travel on the Sabbath day. So pray that that's not going to be on those days. For then shall be great tribulation. And that's where we get that phrase from. We often talk about the tribulation. This is where Jesus himself gives us that phrase. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. 
The book of Revelation details this time of the tribulation and the impact it's going to have on the world. But Matthew's focusing very much on Israel. He goes on and says, And except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake. Once again, some people read this and they think it must be talking about the church. It's in the New Testament. It must be church. No, no. This is still Israel. And just because the, the, the Old Testament very much is the account of the nation of Israel and the New Testament very much speaks of the church, a lot of Christians mistakenly just think that if it's in the New Testament, it must be church. No, there's so much about Israel in the New Testament also. And clearly here we're told. But for the elect's sake, this term that means it refers to the Jews in this context, those days shall be shortened. They won't apply to the church. The church will be taken out of the world before this happens. God always removes his own before he brings his wrath. Then if, there, if any man shall say unto you, lo, he is, uh, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise a false Christ and false prophets and shall show signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Well, there will be a false Christ. We refer to him as Antichrist. There'll be a false prophet. We, we call him the false prophet. Not particularly imaginative, but works. You know, these two individuals that the Bible says are coming onto the world scene. Antichrist, is character, he's going to be a great political figure. He's going to unite all the religions of the world together. This false prophet is going to do some incredible things. And people are going to be so wowed by them. Notice that he could even potentially see, receive the dele- uh, deceive the elect. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 then. And many of them, at this time that we're speaking of, that sleep in the dust of the earth, those that have died, shall awake. Talking of resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And that's all the angel gives Daniel at this point. But we have other scriptures that give us greater clarity on these things. And specifically, Jesus himself spoke of the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of damnation. In fact, if we look in John's gospel in John chapter 5, it says, Jesus said, marvel not at this. Don't be surprised. For the hour is coming in the which that all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. You see, when we leave this life, our body, physical body, comes to an end. But the real us, our soul, is eternal. You can't just turn the soul off. You don't just cease existing. You know, you are not your body. Your body is simply where you dwell. And the Bible uses the expression like a tent. You know, you can go camping sometimes and you can dwell in a tent, you know. Our bodies are just like a tent. They get old, they get corrupt and so on, and they give out eventually. But our soul, the real person, which is made up of our heart and our mind. Our heart is the emotional part in the sense of us. The mind is the intellectual part and together they form who we are. We're not talking about the organs, our physical heart that pumps blood around or our brain. Our brain doesn't control us. We're in control of our brain. We use our brain as a computer in that sense. No, no. The real us carries on. And so what we're told here is that everybody, the just, the unjust, are all destined for resurrection. The question then is, what's going to happen? Which direction are you going to go in? Again, we're told that some shall come forth that have done good unto the resurrection of life. That sounds good. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm not an evil person. By whose standard? If you judge it by God's standard, we're told that we've all fallen short of God's standard. There's none righteous, is what the Bible says in Romans. No, no, we we have all fallen short of God's standard. And the only way to be declared righteous is if someone who is righteous gives us their righteousness. And in return, they take our sin, our iniquity, our evil. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's the message of the gospel. According to the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of the just isn't a single event. It's not just a once-only event, but it's a category, okay? It's comprised of various separate events. And we read this in 1 Corinthians. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So Jesus rose from the dead on the day of the... Oh, the, the feast of first fruits, which is why this Paul links it with this, has become the first fruits. It was the feast, the Jewish feast of first fruits that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And we're told, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And then we're told this, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Which coming is that? Well, I believe Paul's referring to the rapture. Those who are Christ's, those who are saved, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, prior to the rapture, when the rapture occurs, that again is when Jesus will return from heaven to take his church out of this world before this time of judgment comes. We're told that those will be resurrected. That's what, that verse, again, Leon, inspired of the Lord, no doubt, that he chose that verse this morning because it fits so perfectly with this. We're told that there's going to come this time that the dead in Christ, those who are believers who have died, will rise first. Then we that are alive and remain are going to be caught up together. We're going to be changed, we're going to be transformed in the moment, in an instant of time. And we're forever going to be with the Lord. We will get our resurrected bodies at that point. So that's Jesus was the first that rose from the dead. Now those that are rapture. And then notice that last statement, then cometh the end. What's that talking about? It's talking about the day of the Lord. This, all the events are going to then follow on from that point. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, we read this, verse 4. And I saw thrones, this is John seeing his vision, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls, notice souls, not bodies, souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Now, that could have been throughout the ages. There's been lots of martyrs. But there also specifically will be during this time of tribulation, once the church is gone and suddenly people realize that a lot of Christians have suddenly disappeared. Once that happens, there's going to be this time when a lot of people will believe and they'll put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And when that takes place, a lot of those believers will end up being put to death for their faith. They'll be martyred. Okay, so we're told that under the altar in heaven, there were these souls that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And specifically, it links it to this time because it says, and which had not received or not worshipped the beast, neither his image. So this has to be during that early part of that tribulation that is yet to come. They hadn't worshipped his beast, neither, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads. Oh, that's going to be such a wonderful thing, by the way, the mark of the beast. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. You know, we've got all these problems at the moment. We've got, you know, the whole issue with cash. And, you know, it's so much easier to have a card that you can just tap. But then you could lose your card and things like that. You know, and then you've got all the track and trace. And it's okay getting your app on the phone, but that doesn't always work. You can't always connect, you know, and so on. You know, just imagine if you could have a mark for buying and selling. It would make life so easy. And that's how it's going to be presented. And the majority of the world are going, oh, yeah, this seems like a really good idea. But the Bible warns us that we are not to take that mark. Well, Christians won't be here. But those that are here at that point that are starting to think, hang on, maybe what the Christians were saying was true. Maybe the Bible is true. Anybody that takes that mark will not inherit eternal life. And we're told that so this, this group that hadn't taken his mark on their foreheads or in their hands, and by the way, your forehead and your hand are the, the two places on your body where the temperature changes most. It's great for powering a little device like that that you can put under the surface of the skin. And they, talk, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Then we're told, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And then we're told, this is the first resurrection. Or in other words, this concludes the first resurrection. So the rest of the dead, they're going to get put back to the end of this time when Jesus is going to rule. We talk about the millennium. This will be a period of a thousand years that Jesus will rule on the earth. At the end of that time, the rest of the dead are going to be dealt with. Okay? But we're told specifically this effectively brings to a close this period of the first resurrection that began with Jesus. It will see the rapture of the church. It will see the martyrs during the tribulation and any others that God chooses during that time. They will all be part of that first resurrection, the resurrection of the just. And we're told, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Speaks of great blessing for those in that category. So that whole period uh, comes to a completion the first resurrection and the 
period between the, res- the completion of the first resurrection and then the resurrection of damnation, it seems to be separated by this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Back to Daniel, verse 3. And they, shall be, oh, sorry, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. In the book of Philippians in the New Testament, Paul said this, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're told that we are to shine. Daniel is told here by the angel that there will be those in this time period that are going to shine as lights. Jesus himself said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And then we're also told, Jesus speaking of these times, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father who has ears to hear, let him hear. I believe that's the the fulfillment in a sense of what Daniel's being told by the angel that in the time of the end, these things are going to take place and there'll be those that will stand up for the truth and they will shine. We are called to be salt and light as Christians. Verse 4, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So Daniel's told, okay, just Daniel, park this for now. This isn't going to happen straight away. This is going to be in the future. For Daniel, this was a long way in the future. For us, it's very, very near now. But we're told this interesting statement that knowledge shall be increased. Now, is it general knowledge? Well, certainly we know that technology has exploded in the last 150 years. You can't imagine what the world was like going back. It's difficult to imagine what the world was like even, say, 30, 40 years ago without the internet, without mobile phones. I mean, our children look at us today and they're baffled at the thought of not having a mobile phone. Well, how did you talk to each other? You you could WhatsApp. But that was what it was like. You remember that. We used to, you know, as, as children, we used to go home and say to mum and dad, you know, I'll be home later. Where are you going? Going down the park. Okay, that was it. You know, there was no checking where you are on their app or anything like that. Now, the world has changed dramatically. So knowledge has increased in that sense. But in the context here, it seems to be more that knowledge in terms of understanding what is in this book, not just Daniel, but the Bible, is going to increase. Is that true? Well, I think it is true. You know, in one sense, we live in the most biblically illiterate generation ever. We've got more Bibles and uh, Bible apps and tools than we've probably ever had at any time in history. Never has there been so much access to the Bible, and yet there are so many that don't read it or don't know it or don't understand it. And yet there are also many that have invested their lives trying to understand and teach this incredible book. And we are beneficiaries of many of those that have gone before us and have helped to understand. And as we go on, as we get close to the end, more and more of these things start to make sense. And then I, Daniel, looked and behold, there stood other two, and the one on this side of the bank of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? It's interesting now, we're we're kind of given this this picture now that Daniel's looking and he sees two. Now, presumably, these are two angels he's seen, both one on each side of the bank. And now they turn to the one who's in the river. Notice this is somebody who's upon the waters, effectively walking on the water. This is that individual that Daniel had seen initially in the vision, who we concluded from the details was Jesus Christ, walking on the water. Interesting, isn't it? Clothed in linen, again, just speaks of that purity. How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? It's interesting that although the angels had access to the scripture of truth, it's what we've already been told, yet to really understand, they go to the one walking on the water. That's what we must do. If we want to understand the things in God's word, we need to go to the one that walks on the water. We need to go to Jesus Christ himself. It's his word. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand, and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we've already seen this, because back in chapter 4 of Daniel, with the situation with Nebuchadnezzar and so on, and his uh, problem he had, that expression, a time is a year. It's very clear from Daniel chapter 4, if you want to go back and review that, you see it. Times, plural, will be two years, and half a time will be half a year. 
So one plus two and a half gives us three and a half. So we've been told that it's going to be three and a half years. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because when we go to the book of Revelation, we're told very clearly that the great tribulation will last for three and a half years. The whole period will be a seven-year period. For the first three and a half years, there'll be all sorts of problems. Israel will be in their land and they'll be able to sacrifice. But for the last three and a half years, that's when all these things are really going to kick off. So it'll be time, times and half a time, when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, and these things shall be finished. The The man clothed in linen tells the angel, and Daniel overhears, that this period of time will last for three and a half years, as we said. The angel is also told that Antichrist will be allowed to continue in order to break the power of the Jews. It's one of the main purposes of the time of Jacob's trouble is to bring God's judgment on the Jews until they seek him and repent. There's a great verse in the book of Hosea, chapter 5, verse 15. I will go, return to my place, God speaking, till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early or earnestly. This is the verse that tells us that in the midst of this trouble that's coming, Israel will eventually turn around. You know, I've been reading, going through Chronicles in my own personal study. And it's incredible how many times kings in Israel or Judah were in real predicaments and they turned to God. And then when everything was well again, they kind of went back to their old ways. You know, but it's interesting, isn't it? People often, you know, if there's nothing else they could do, they'll pray. Well, God will allow this time to come upon Israel, not just for this, because there will be judgment upon the world and so on, and that's dealt with elsewhere. But specifically here, Daniel is being told that this will happen, and it will be to bring Israel back to him. Verse 8, And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, this is Daniel, Oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Now, Daniel seems to be, at this point, addressing the man clothed in linen rather than the angel. So it seems to be now, if we're right in our assumption of what we said back in chapter 10, that this is Jesus that he's speaking to. I heard and understood and I said, Oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Where is all this going to end for Israel? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Notice, the words are closed and sealed when? Until the time of the end. When will they be Unsealed? When will they be revealed? At the time of the end. It, it ties in with what we said about knowledge increasing at the end. So these kind of link these things together. Verse 11. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. God promises that those that are seeking him that are not wicked will have understanding of what is going to happen it will be the purified who will understand you know in spiritual things can only be discerned be discerned through revelation do you remember up at caesarea philippi jesus asked matthew who do men say i am and jesus uh, matthew uh, sorry asked peter who do men say i am and Peter came back and said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Well, you know, that's a, almost a principle you can apply through Scripture. You know, spiritual things, scriptural things are not understood naturally. It's not because you're uh, uh, brilliant and, and uh, clever and a very uh, high IQ. No, these things are revealed by God when we have hearts that are soft and willing to listen to him. And here, this is what we're being told, that those that are purified will understand the wicked will not understand it will all seem like utter nonsense to them what makes sense verse 11 and from that time sorry and from the time that the daily sacrifice now this has already been alluded to this is the point that for us of course there was that forerunner antiochus epiphanes in 167 bc a real historical event that took place that was the model the real things coming when antichrist is going to come and put his image in the temple and he's going to stop the Jews sacrificing. And we're told that from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that makes desolate set up, there shall be be 1,290 days. Okay, well, that's just confuses because we've just got an extra 30 days on top. And then the final verse says, Blessed are he that waits and comes to the 1,305 and 30 days. Okay, so we've got our 1,260 days. 
Then in verse 11, we're told there's another 30 days, and then we have another 45 days on top of that. Okay, so in total, there's a 75-day interval that we see introduced here that is tagged on to the end of the Great Tribulation. So we get our three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, same period of time. At the end of that, there's a 75-day period that Daniel says is going to happen. That's going to separate the end of the tribulation and effectively the beginning of the millennium. Now, during this interval, various events are going to occur. There's going to be the removal of the abomination of desolation. Antichrist is going to be resurrected. Yes, you heard it. Because he's going to be destroyed when Jesus returns. He will then be resurrected. He will incidentally be the first fruits of the second resurrection, but will ultimately be sent to hell. Antichrist and the false prophet will then be cast alive into the lake of fire. Satan is going to be bound for this thousand-year period where Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth. Then we'll see the resurrection of the tribulation saints, those who have become believers during the tribulation. And there'll be this setting in place of thrones for the saints, those who are going to rule with Christ. All that's going to be taking place. And then finally, the judgment of the living Gentiles. That's the pro-Semitic sheep and goats, uh, sorry, the anti-Semitic goats. So in Matthew 25, there's a portion that speaks of when Jesus returns, he's going to call the nations before him as the sheep and the goats. And the criteria is how they've treated the Jews. Jesus says, it depends on how you treated my brethren. Not, a lot of people misunderstand and misinterpret that. It's very simple. If you follow the, the theme through, Matthew always writes with that Jewish perspective. So those are the things that can happen. Uh, it's actually in the notes. It goes, so I've gone into in detail each one of these points. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, go through now. Um, but if you want to read them, um, they'll be on the website later on or on the email we send out. Um, so if you want to go through and look at each of these points in detail and uh, see how it applies and where it links in, uh, you can do so. But to try and make it clear, we go from that decree way back there, 445 B.C., by Artaxerxes. This was recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, okay, 445 BC. And this is the prophecy that we had that Daniel was given in Daniel chapter 9. That takes us up to where the red line stops. And then within a week of that, that's when the Messiah presented himself to Israel as king. And then the Messiah was cut off. Okay, And then the people of the prince that was to come destroyed the city. That's the Romans. They destroyed Jerusalem. And now we're in this period that's the the church age. That's where we are right now. And we are waiting for the rapture of the church, as Leon again shared with us earlier. That's our hope. Paul speaks of it as our blessed hope. We know this was a detailed prophecy to the day. It's actually 173,880 days to the point that Israel had their Messiah presented to them. And of course they missed the day and so blindness was um, placed upon them. As we said, that's the 10th of Nisan, AD 32, in the Jewish calendar. And that's when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Luke 19 gives you the details of that. But what is coming, after we get to the end of the church age, is the last seven years of this prophecy that Daniel got in chapter 9. Okay, And this will be when Antichrist will confirm, okay, ratify an agreement or set something up, however it's going to play out, a seven-year covenant with Israel and the surrounding nations. The whole peace in the Middle East issue that you hear so readily on the news will finally seemingly be resolved. And this man, his wonderful political leaders, great charisma is going to step onto the scene and he's going to do this. And everyone's going to think, wow, that's amazing. You know, Bush tried, Clinton tried, Obama tried, Trump tried. Not sure how far Biden's going to go with it. But, you know, all the American presidents have had a shot at it, and lots of other world leaders have tried to do this, and none of them have managed to broker any real peace in the Middle East. But this individual will come on the scene and do that. And it will come from within the old Roman Empire, which pretty much is Europe. Or it could be the areas of North Africa and so on, because that was all part of the Roman Empire. Okay, then 
We've got that seven-year covenant you see on the, the left. The church will be raptured, of course. The seven-year covenant is in sign. That begins this 70th week, that last seven years. It will be divided into two, three-and-a-half-year periods of time. The first part, Jesus refers to as the beginning of sorrows. Like a lot of people think that's not going to be too bad, but you only got to read Revelation 6 to realize it's really going to be very unpleasant. And it's, again, the, the verse that um, um, I think it's from Hosea that uh, Leon quoted earlier. You know, woe to those that, that, that look forward to the day of the Lord. It's not going to be fun. All right? But both of those periods, three and a half years, the whole period of time, a seven-year period of time, and that will then conclude with the second coming of Jesus as he comes back to deliver the children of Israel, the Jews, from what is about to be their destruction at the hand of Antichrist. But Jesus will step in and will stop that happening. And then we get this 75-day interval, which is what we've just been talking about. Okay, so what we're going to find is the first 30 days, seemingly in that point, after 30 days, that's when the abomination of desolation is going to be removed from the temple, this cleansing of the temple. Jesus is going to actually rebuild the temple. Um, So it may even be the whole thing will just be just destroyed. Um, There will be a great earthquake in Jerusalem at this time, and it may be that that will cause this rebuilt temple to crumble, and then a new temple will be built for the millennial reign of Christ. And then after the 45 days is when Jesus' reign on earth will begin. And that begins that millennium uh, millennial reign of Christ. And again, those are all the things we just went through of all that's going to take place in that 75-day interval. Hopefully that just a bit of clarity to what we're told here. And then Daniel's told, But thou go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest. Daniel, you're going to die. You're not going to see these things with your own eyes at that, you know, in the near future. It's going to be in the distant future. But thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. In other words, Daniel, keep on going in the way you have known. Don't give up and you'll receive your reward in the end. That's the idea of you'll stand in your lot. You know, you're getting your portion. You'll get what you deserve. And that's what he's being told. It's kind of like, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And that's pretty much what Daniel's being told here. What is Daniel's way? Well, from the time as a young teenager, when he was carried away from all that he'd known, to the awe and splendor and all the sensual pleasures of Babylon, Daniel had had just one way of living. We're told, it's one of my favorite verses because I just love the the, the, the thoughts in this. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not be def- that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. What I love about this is that Daniel decided before the event what the outcome was going to be. That's the way it has to be with temptation, you know. If you wait till you're tempted before you deal with it, you will pretty much guarantee you're going to stumble. But if you already, in your heart, have purpose in your heart that you're not going to be defiled, and you're ready for those things when they come, and you've already decided which which way you're going to play, well, then you will stand by God's grace. And Daniel is just a great example of this. You know, this incredible man does serve as a challenge and an inspiration to all of us. He's a a man who went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. That was Daniel's life. He wasn't doing anything particularly special on this particular day. This is Daniel chapter 6, the whole lion's den thing just about to come upon him. He just prayed. He just prayed to God. That's what he did. He had a life of prayer, a relationship with God. Daniel didn't just talk the talk. He really did walk the walk. Even though it could have cost him his job, the whole Daniel chapter 6, the lion's den, you know, and more importantly, it could have cost him his life. But he trusted God in all of those things. You know, where are all those who tried to take his life back in chapter 6? Yeah, we don't even have a record of their names. Yet of Daniel, we are told that he was a man greatly beloved of God, and that is recorded in the word of God for eternity. Jesus said, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
And then in Luke 9, 26, Jesus said, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words of him, shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Jesus encourages us to stand up for the truth, to stand up for him, to be, as we were told, those lights that will shine in the last days. The angel said to Daniel, that's going to happen. You know, you and I are the fulfillment of those prophecies. Whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I will confess also before my Father which is in heaven. You know, I'd rather, there's a lyric from a song by a Christian band called Petra, I'd rather be a fool in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. Just love it, it's very simple. Does it really matter what men think of us, what people think of us? What really matters is what God thinks of us. Years ago when I, I did this study, I use these four headers, really, for the book. And I think they're a great summary of everything we've looked at. Preeminence. What we see through the book of Daniel is that God is in complete control of history, of everything. That it's all happening according to God's plan. That God is the one who rules in the kingdoms of man. Man might think he's in control, but really God is in control. Purpose. Because Daniel purposed in his heart. He decided what the outcome would be before he got there. And his heart was resolute to serve and to worship only God. And purity, which comes from that purpose. But Daniel kept his life pure and was used so incredibly by God to the point that he ends up being effectively prime minister, not only over the Babylonian Empire, but then of the next empire that follows, the the, the Medo-Persian Empire. I mean, that's a staggering feat. I think unparalleled in history. I don't think there's any other other individual you will find that ruled in that kind of capacity over two successive world empires. But Daniel had that honor because he kept his way pure and the Lord used him. And then finally, the book is a book of prophecy, as we've seen throughout. It's a book that foretells the future of the Jews, what's going to happen to them that although they have been scattered around the world, they will be regathered. There is a very troublous time ahead for them. But it also speaks of what's coming on the world as a whole. And we see the incredible precision of all of that prophecy, which just go to underline the fact that this really is God's word, and we do well to take heed to these lessons. Let's bow our hearts and pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can conclude this study. But Lord, we know that the, the narrative goes on in our own lives. Lord, as we are to be those lights that shine, that the angel said to Daniel would come in the last days. Lord, let us shine brightly for you. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us not be fearful of man, for what can man do to us? But Lord, let us stand for that which we know is true. Oh Lord, let us stand in love. Oh Lord, may we not be aggressive. Lord, may we not have a a side to us, Lord, that is just antagonistic toward others. Oh, Lord, may we just show the love to others that you have shown to us. But, Lord, may we also show that love in truth by standing for that which is true and rejecting all that which is not. Father, thank you for these lessons. Thank you for this reminder that your word is true from the beginning, that we can trust it. But thank you, too, for the reminder that we see in the life of Daniel that you call us to live purpose directed lives filled by your spirit. Oh Lord, we just thank you now. Bless us as we walk with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.